Welcome to Body of Work, an exploration of health topics in the news and important issues facing science with experts from Baylor College of Medicine. I'm Erin Blair, and my guest today is bioethicist Dr. Amy McGuire. So we're talking about the proliferation of at-home genetic testing mm -hmm. and kind of the ethical implications of swabbing your cheek or otherwise uh, providing a sample, sending it off in the mail, and getting back information about yourself. I mean, what, what could go wrong with that? When, when do you remember these at-home kits first being marketed? So in 2007, 23andMe, which is one of the biggest companies that offers these uh, direct-to-consumer genetic testing uh, kits, hit the markets. Um, it got a lot of uh, publicity because 23andMe was founded um, by the wife of one of the founders of Google. So it had quite a bit of a large um, financial backing to it. Um, and so I remember reading about that in 2007 and, and being really fascinated um, by, by this movement. I think I wrote the fir my first paper thinking about some of the issues related to this. It was published in 2008. And um, that year we did a survey of um, individuals to say, what do you think of this? And do you think this is a good idea? And what are you concerned about? And that was published in 2009. So those first early years, we were kind of looking at this with a lot of curiosity, thinking along with everybody else in our field, thinking, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? How is this going to turn out? What are people going to think of this? So traditionally, a genetic test has been a clinical environment. Yeah, so traditionally when you have a concern about a particular condition that might run in your family, the method of getting testing is to go to your doctor and they'll typically um, refer you to a genetic counselor and they'll talk about sort of what your specific risks might be with and without genetic testing. And so they're putting, when they do the genetic testing in a healthcare environment, they're really putting the results into context of everything else. So one thing that we really need to understand is that genetics is, for the most part, with the exception of a, you know, a, you know, some really significant Mendelian disorders where if you have a gene, you're going to get a disorder. And a, and a clear example of that is something like um, Huntington's disease. Right, so people who are at risk of Huntington's disease, if they have an affected parent, for example, they have a 50% chance of inheriting the gene themselves. Mm. And if they inherit it, then they know that they're going to get Huntington's disease. But there aren't very many diseases or disorders like that. Most of the things we test for from a genetic perspective are really complex, and you need to understand the results in the context of your family history, of your current symptoms, um, of sort of what your environmental exposures are, et cetera. And so when you get those tests done with a licensed healthcare professional, typically a genetic counselor or a geneticist will spend a lot of time doing a family history with you and looking at sort of how the results might fit into your bigger picture. On the other, on the other hand, when you do it through a direct-to-consumer genetic testing service, they're not looking at the whole picture. They're just giving you the genetic results back, and then it's your job to try to figure out what that means for you as an individual. So how specific are these results? I mean, how detailed is the report back to the consumer? 
Well, it depends on the company. So we're talking about these as if they're one size fits all. There are a lot of different companies who offer a lot of different services. So some of the companies that are out there are not actually focused on health-related information. They're more focused on things like genetic genealogy, Mm -hmm. where they want to try to map you to what parts of the world did your ancestors come from, and they can link you to people who you might be related to. Um, There are other companies out there who might provide um, interpretive services. And then there's companies like 23andMe, which again is one of the biggest um, companies that out that's out there that kind of does a little bit of everything. So they'll provide um, ancestry information. They provide information about what a lot of people refer to as recreational genetics. So things like, do you have a gene that's been associated with having a lot of earwax? <laughs> Or baldness, right? So usually you'll know. So curiosities. Curiosities that aren't aren't really health related um, in any in any real sense of the word. And then they're also offering personal health information. So um, and the types of personal health information that a company like Twenty Three and Me offers is risk information about very complex and common diseases, like are you at increased risk of heart disease or diabetes or things that we see very frequently in the population based just on your genetics. Um, And of course we know that regardless of what your genetics says about those types of disorders, a lot of it has to do with your lifestyle, your environment, your diet, you know, those sorts of things, your exercise. Um, And then they'll also provide information that is a little bit more predictive, right? So things like um, BRCA mutations, which have been shown to be fairly highly uh, relevant to your risk of getting breast and ovarian cancer. So it depends on the company in terms of what report you get back. Um, But typically it's done online um, and you get information about your risk level. And some of the companies have sort of color-coded schemes where they say you're at high risk, you know, medium risk, or low risk based on the findings that they have. So how could someone misinterpret these results when they get them? So I think there's a couple ways that these results can be misinterpreted. The first is that, you, you know, there's the potential that somebody could not understand the significance of genetic information Um, and how it fits into the bigger picture, right? So they could get a report back that says that based on their genetics, they're at increased risk over the general population for um, heart disease later in their life. And they could interpret that to mean, I'm going to get heart disease and, you know, get really upset about that. Um, If we do if we educate people well, I think we can minimize the risk of that because the fact of the matter is, is that's not what the report is actually telling you. And I think most of the companies do a pretty good job of educating their customers that that's not what the results mean. Another way that people can misinterpret the results is um, they can get, they cannot understand what's actually being tested for. So let's take 23andMe that's testing for the BRCA mutation, right? There are thousands of mutations in the BRCA gene that have been shown to be associated with increased risk of breast or ovarian cancer. They test for the three most common variants in the BRCA gene. They miss 90% of the variants. So somebody could get a result and it could be negative on their test and they could assume that they're not at risk but they're not accounting for the fact that they could have one of those other 90, you know, variants in the 90%, um, and they could neglect to follow up with more increased screening, especially if they have a family history of breast or ovarian cancer. Um, there's also the possibility of false positives. 
usually the companies are pretty good. Most of the companies are pretty good at giving you um, of having what we call analytic validity. So they're actually aren't a whole lot of false positives. But what a lot of people end up doing is if the company isn't testing for a certain variance, they'll send their entire genetic you know, database that they have on themselves, their genetic information, to a third-party interpreter. And there have been a lot of reports of third-party interpreters interpreting that information incorrectly. Can you see any benefits to at-home genetic testing? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people are very, very curious um, and, you know, we, we all constantly want to seek information out about ourselves. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's actually a good thing. Um, we're very curious about sort of who am I? I think that's sort of the fundamental existential question we all have. Um, who am I and what makes me me and, you know, those sorts of questions. So I do think that there's benefits in that regard, just from a curiosity perspective for many of the things that people are looking at. Um, I think there's also a benefit to the extent that many of these companies do ancestry testing and things like that. People also want connection. They want to know not only who am I, but who are my people. That's just a function of being human. And so um, it's re you hear really interesting stories of people who get connected to um, whether it's a, you know, a relative that they didn't know existed or a part of their family from a whole different part of the world that they, that they never knew. Or adoptees who find their biological parents. Um, you hear good and bad stories about that, but certainly people who are interested in that information um, find it useful. Um, you know, I have a colleague who knew for forever that his father was a, an anonymous sperm donor, um, and he donated sperm to put himself through medical school, all through medical school. And he's now gone on these direct-to-consumer genetic testing websites and has identified two half-siblings and mm. connected with them and have a great, has a great relationship with them. And those two half-siblings did not know that they were the product of sperm donation, but they feel really fortunate to now have this sort of new extended family. So you hear stories like that, and I think that can be really beneficial to individuals. I also think from a health perspective, there is the possibility that those who may not know that they're at increased risk for certain disorders um, could find out that information and it could encourage them to either make changes in their life or to go see a physician or to follow up on something. And we do hear cases of that as well. Have you had your genetic test yourself? So I have not used a direct-to-consumer <laughs> genetic testing company, not because I'm opposed to it, yeah. but I just haven't done it. Hmm. Um, I did get offered uh, several years ago. One of my colleagues was doing a research study and was doing not the – so the kinds of genetic testing that, that the companies are currently doing is what we call SNP arrays. So they're looking at um, sort of the, the single changes in your genome – over thousands of, of um, sites in your genome, right? But they're not looking at the whole thing. They're not reading the whole book. So this was a particular study where they were reading the whole book. They were doing whole genome sequencing. Um, and my colleague asked me if I would be interested in participating in the study, and I would get back the results of that. And it was really interesting because I'm, I'm a big proponent of research. And um, I decided in the, at the moment, I said, you know what, you can take my blood, and you can use it for your research, but I'm not so sure yet if I want the results back. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit about why I felt that way. Um, at the time, so this was about five years ago, 
I hadn't really thought through the implications of this, mm -hmm. but I have a family history of neurodegenerative diseases. So my mother has Parkinson's disease and my grandfather had Alzheimer's disease. And so I wanted to think a little bit about what I want to know if I had a genetic predisposition to either one of those sure. diseases. Um, and I thought like I would go back to my office and I kind of do what you know, people in my position, bioethicists and lawyers do, we make lists of like pros and cons and we make a very rational decision. And it turned out to be really a five-year journey of thinking very carefully about who I am and what it means to be me and trying to like come, you know, somewhat, it was sort of an existential journey of like coming to terms with like, what would this information mean for me? And it was really interesting to me that I went through that because I know probably as well as anybody else, right, that intellectually I know that nothing that they could tell me from my whole genome sequence would tell me whether I was going to get Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease or whether I was not going to get Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease. These are, we don't have a gene that tells us you're going to get this particular disorder for Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. Um, so I knew that, and I knew that really well, and yet I was still very concerned that whatever the results were, it would change how I felt about myself. Right? It would change the things that I expected of myself. It might change my relationship to my kids and how they felt their obligations were to me later in life or things like that. So I spent a long time really kind of thinking about that. Um, and I didn't get my results back for, for many years. Um, I did recently get them back. And the reason I got them back is because I decided that I wanted to have my mother have her genome sequence because they didn't really know what they were looking for in me unless they knew what she had. Um, and so both my mother and father had their genome sequenced. And once they got their results back, which they shared with me, I felt comfortable kind of going and saying, okay, now we know what we're looking for, if we're looking for anything. And um, I'm comfortable sort of putting that information into context for me individually. And I had also gotten to the point where I really felt like I could take that information in and not only understand it intellectually, but appreciate it emotionally sort of what that information was telling me. And you worked with a genetic counselor through all of this? I worked with a geneticist, yeah. If you had gone through Ancestry or uh, 23andMe, how much of your journey would have been different? So I certainly couldn't have done the test and then spent the time thinking about whether I wanted the results in the same way. Um, but in some ways, it's not that dissimilar. I mean, I've, I've actually had a 23andMe kit that somebody bought me, which is another interesting story, right? Sitting in my house for three years <laughs> as I've gone through this journey, thinking about do I want to send this in and what do I want to find out? Um, and I haven't sent it in, um, but it doesn't mean I will never send it in. But, it, but that was part of it of, of you have to make that decision before you actually go and actually have the test done. And they do, I will say that I think 23andMe does have a couple of their findings, like risk of Alzheimer's disease and things that we think might be particularly sensitive for people that they may not want to know. There's an extra sort of click through of like you have to, when you go online to get your results, you have to click and agree to see those results. So they can mask those if you decide you don't want them. And you could later go back and look at them if you would like to. If you go to see a genetic counselor versus getting your results online from your at-home test, what, what kind of a qualitative difference do you have in kind of information you have and the kind of understanding that you have of what your results mean? So when you get a clinical genetic test, typically you have quite a bit of counseling around what those results might mean for you in the context of your life and your family history and your, your current situation. 
Um, when you do a direct-to-consumer genetic test, typically you get the results on a computer screen. Um, and then it's the burden is on you to go consult with somebody who can, who can help you figure out what that means. Now, I think some of the companies are um, thinking about ways in which they can offer genetic counseling services more remotely um, to individual their customers um, and can provide sort of referrals and things like that. So hopefully we'll move more in that direction. Um, but for the most part, the burden is more on the consumer um, to take the information and to, if they have a positive result, to go get it validated clinically. Um, if they, you know, have a finding that they're um, confused about to go seek out the expertise that can help them understand it. What about a, a clinical genetic test? Is that experience usually captured in a moment we're making a, we're helping you make a decision about whether to have children or not because mm -hmm. of, of some condition that is in your family? Uh, is it pinpointed on that condition, or is it an ongoing relationship with the patient afterwards? So it's typically a one-time test. Um, there's a lot of discussion right now in the profession and in the field about what we ought to be doing about reinterpretation. So the science is moving very quickly. Our understanding of genetics and different variants and what they mean for health and disease is advancing very quickly. And so every year there's sort of new variants that are coming up that we say, oh, now we understand that either this variant is significant for disease or we thought it was significant for disease, but now we have enough evidence that we know that it's really not significant for disease. And so it is important for people to get updated information. The challenge with that is that it puts a very large uh, burden on the laboratory to continually update everybody's interpretive information, and there isn't really a way to pay for that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not something that you can submit to reimbursement for insu to insurance for reimbursement of, I'm going to reinterpret this to see if there's any new information. There's also a challenge of sometimes we lose contact with patients, and so we might get new information about them, and we have no way of communicating it to them. And so this has been a really big challenge for the field, and I think we're still trying to figure out um, how to do that, but there certainly is a recognition that we do need to be updating information regularly because of just the pace of, of scientific discovery in this, in this uh, space. That does raise the question of do these at-home tests have any updating system where they go back to their customers and say, hey, since we did your screening, we've learned this, that, or the other that might affect your results or how you think about your health going forward? That's a really good question. Um, I'm actually not 100% sure of the answer, but I don't think that they update your particular results. But what people can do is they can sort of download all of their information from most of these companies. And there's this whole industry out there now of third-party interpreters where you can upload your results to them. And over time, they can reinterpret your results as often as you want. Now, again, there have been some issues with the validity of those findings. They've, you know, they, there have been cases that have been in the media talking about people who have gotten results back from those third-party interpreters that have um, ended up being false positives or things that have caused them quite a lot of anxiety or concern that they've later gone to the medical establishment and tried to get confirmed and it didn't confirm. So I would be a little bit wary and careful about what service you're using and um, how much weight you put on those findings unless you go and get a second opinion. Do you have any sense of how frequently 
uh, people go back to their healthcare providers with the information they've gotten and say, what does this mean? Uh, am I, how can you fix me? Uh, is the doing something, doing the test at home still leading back to a conversation with your, your doctor uh, about your health? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question. So um, most physicians don't have anything to really say on the basis of these results. So if it's a particularly concerning finding, they may want to redo the test in a clinical environment and, you know, validate it and make sure that it's correct. Um, But most of the findings, like I said, that people are getting are increased risk of common and complex disorders. And so the clinician's advice would be something like, you know, eat better, exercise more, be healthy, you know, this is interesting. Um, so we don't know how much it has actually impacted healthcare. And we've actually found that people who get sequencing done, get genetic testing done, don't typically um, follow up with a lot of very expensive tests and procedures. And that's either one of two things is happening there. One is that the information that they're getting isn't telling them that much, that, rec- that is actionable, that something that they can actually do something about. Um, and the other possibility is that physicians are doing their job, which is that they're sort of acting as the gatekeepers and saying, no, you'd actually clinically don't need that test, you know, or that's not indicated at this point in time, but this is what we should be doing. So we want the, we want it to target the right treatment to the right people, right? So if you get genetic test results, we want you to follow up with the appropriate follow-up care, treatment, screening, whatever you need. But we don't want you to um, over-treat because of some concern that, that may be underlying um, and not, you know, not relevant to you at the time. So is there any evidence that people who take at-home tests are making any changes in their, their lifestyle, their habits, uh, as a result of, of what they learn about their health? There certainly are anecdotal cases out there. So I think Francis Collins one time got up in front of a large group and said, I had my direct-to-consumer genetic testing done, and I went on, you know, I was motivated by the results to go on a diet and lose whatever, 40 pounds or whatever. And so that, you know, people think, yeah, that's great. We should be doing more of that. Um, we've actually done some research sort of looking more systematically at how people are responding to genetic testing information more generally, whether through a direct-to-consumer company. Um, we have one study focused on that and other studies that are focused more on getting this information in a healthcare setting. The, the sad news is, is that it's really hard to change people's behaviors. Um, so, so we find that generally there might be a little spike in people eating a little better and doing a little more exercise for a couple months or a couple weeks, and then they go back to their regular behaviors. So we hope that it would change people. We hope that anything would change people. We know that you don't have to get a genetic test to know that you should eat well and you should exercise and you should take care of yourself. Um, And if you're not doing that, maybe this is the thing that puts you over the edge and motivates you to start that diet or to, you know, start doing your daily exercise or whatever. Um, But the evidence shows that it actually doesn't probably do that in a significant way for the majority of people um, over the long haul. Um, And so we need to look at that and say, how can we better motivate people um, to be engaging in these behaviors? And what about the psychological effects of perhaps learning more than you bargained for? Right. So the major concern that we've had is that people are going to get horribly depressed and anxious, clinically depressed and anxious by getting this information. And we have now have a series of studies that have been done, that we've done many of them, our colleagues have done many of them, 
that have looked at people's psychological response after getting genetic testing. And uniformly, they show that people don't get clinically depressed or anxious. We actually are very adaptable as a human species, right? And we are really bad at predicting how we're going to feel about things, right? We really are. We will say, oh my God, I would feel horrible if I got this information. There's been tons of human psychology studies done this on this. My life would be miserable. I would never be happy again. We're extremely adaptable. So what we find is that most people who get this information, including really what you might think of as particularly troubling information like increased risk of Alzheimer's disease, for example, don't usually get clinically depressed or anxious. Um, now, the, the data on something like Huntington's disease might be slightly different, um, and I don't know that data quite as well, um, but that's kind of a special case. But for most of these other risk, risk um, alleles that we're looking at, uh, people don't get incredibly anxious or depressed. Do they have other, you know, more subtle psychological responses to this, like the kind I was worried about with myself? Do they think differently about themselves? Do they treat themselves differently? We don't really know that. Um, we're doing a study right now looking at babies who are getting their genetic testing done, not in a direct-to-consumer setting, but in a clinical setting. And we're looking at whether getting their genetic information impacts the way that they parents interact with them. Um, parents treat them, parents interact with each other, those sorts of things. And, and we're still sort of analyzing the data, but it looks like there actually is a little bit of an effect on how vulnerable you think your child is when you get risk information about them. So do you bring them to the doctor more often? Do you worry they're going to get sick more often? Like, and does that have an impact on them, on their you know, psychological development more long term? I don't think we know that yet, and I think that's worth continuing to watch and to study and to, and to be sensitive to. It's complicated. It is very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is not. If it, there was an easy answer and there was one issue, I think we might have solved it. But there's, you know, and and new things keep coming up. Um, and so I think, you know, part of part of our challenge is to try to get ahead of the game, um, and not to be alarmist about it, but to try to think about where is the science going, where is um, the industry going, um, and a lot of the work that I do is really trying to bring together industry play stakeholders, scientific stakeholders, consumer stakeholders, patient stakeholders, government stakeholders, and get everybody in the same room to talk about these things. Because I, I think one of the challenges is that, you know, I as a scientist don't know what, you know, the, the heads of these companies are thinking, what their, mar you know, uh, what their business model is, where, they're, where they want to see this going in 10 years, and what they see as the major challenges. And similarly, they don't know where the science is going and what we might be capable of in 10 years and, and what we see as the challenges. And so there's a lot of sort of um, opportunity there for increased dialogue across disciplines. So what should people keep in mind before taking these tests, these at-home tests? What kinds of questions should they ask themselves? Before ordering an at-home genetic test, I think people need to think about, do I want this information? What information might I get back? Do I really understand what this information is going to mean for me? And then they really need, you know, everyone hates to read the fine print, right? I mean, none of us do it. But really, these companies have relied on their terms of service to lay out what are their privacy policies, who's going to get access to your information, how are they going to be able to use it. And so people really need to read the terms of service because all the companies are different and their terms are different. And you need to kind of go in eyes wide open and know what you're signing up for. Thanks for tuning in to Body of Work by Baylor College of Medicine. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll want to be sure to listen to part two of our interview with Dr. McGuire. 
It focuses on privacy and the use of genetic information in forensics. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to listen. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher, as well as at bcm.edu slash podcast. There you can find the episode notes, including information about the experts featured on the show. A quick note about the medical advice and opinions stated in this podcast. Each individual's health profile is unique, so please see a healthcare professional about any questions you may have. Until next time, take care.